Sonic Statesman.com. So hello and welcome to Sonic Talk number 108. This is uh, going to be live, well it's live now on Wednesday the 19th of November 2008 and uh, will be the edited version, assuming I need to do anything to it at all. Um, on Thursday the 20th, uh, that will be available via iTunes and all our usual places. Once again, I'd like to thank all our people in the chat room, um, who you can be found at sonicstate.com forward slash live. Obviously, um, next recording will be a Wednesday again. Um, so yeah, thanks everybody for joining us. Looks like our audio is working again, so we're sticking with it. So uh, without further ado, I'll welcome our, our guests. Uh, first guest, uh, let's say hello to Rich Hilton, shall we, from Connecticut. Hey, good morning. Good morning, Rich. Are you having a good week? Uh, yeah, it's going real well. And uh, t- tomorrow I'm going to Belgium with Chic uh, for a gig on Saturday night. Oh, cool. Chocolate yeah. and beer. Mmm. Mmm. And the uh, breezy North Shore. Yeah, whereabouts in Belgium? Uh, a place called Knocka, which is on the North Shore, and it's probably going to be real cold. Yeah, I imagine. Nice coast, though. Uh, when did we... I went yeah. to... When, we, did, we talked about it. I went to Ostend and Bruges. That's the only place I've been in Belgium, but I liked. Ah, Bruges. I've yet to be in Bruges, but I've been by it many times. I've been to a lot of places in Belgium. We play there a lot, but okay. I haven't been to that one. Is that a private gig, or are you doing a kind of... Um, it's a private know? It's a private show. I think it's a birthday party. Ah, okay. So somebody's getting a big birthday present. For the king of Belgium, probably. No, I don't think. I don't think he's got enough money. <laughs> <laughs> right hi well rich i'm glad you could join us of course rich can be found at myspace.com forward slash hiltonius other stateside uh we've got pj tracy who's back i think you had a bit of a break last week you had a lot of work on pj i believe yes it's been uh it's been a banner week as a matter of fact um i won an emmy this week no way oh i did oh wait yeah PJ. Thank you. Gee, that's a big deal. Yeah, um, kind of unbeknownst to me, a piece that um, I had attached to a television commercial was submitted for an Emmy for best promotion of a television station in the Midwest, and mine won. Wow, cool. So what'd you get? Did you get like yeah. a plaque or a statue or a massive check? What, how does it work? <laughs> I wish a massive check. Um, as a as a team, the creative team that that did the piece gets a statue, oh, and cool. it sits in an office down at WCCO Television, which is our CBS affiliate here in Minnesota. So, do you get to go in and um, have your photo taken next to it <laughs> and put that on your yeah, wall instead? Yeah, I just I, <laughs> I just did actually. So that'll yeah, I'll probably probably post that sometime this week, and then this weekend, um, a creative partner of myself. Uh, and myself, we had a film inducted to the Minnesota Museum of American Art, and um, they did a little film festival on Saturday night, but I was not able to attend because my brother and his wife gave birth to a beautiful, healthy, seven-pound baby girl. Yay! Yay! What a week, PJ! Jeez. <laughs> so it's been a fantastic so, week. Have you spent the most of the week um, completely drunk, then, in, 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 in celebration? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> unfortunately, it's also grant writing season around here, so uh, I've yes, been uh, work work up to my hips. Wow, well, that's really good news, PJ. Congratulations! I know that gongs are overrated. We all sort of say, ah, it doesn't mean anything, but they are great when you get them, aren't they? I mean, there's no doubt about it. You kind of you may sort of scoff at them when you don't get them, but when you do get them, it does make you feel good. Yeah, it does make you feel good. It's nice to be recognized by your peers. 
Yep, absolutely. And that's the, that's the important thing. When it's peers, I mean, if it's just the public, ha, huh. <laughs> it's the peers. <laughs> Did I really say that? No, the public are very important too, of, of course. I've heard they're very nice. <laughs> somebody said and they're that, the ones with the wallets. Yeah, or not, as the case may be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, Anyway, um, congratulations, PJ. PJTracyMusic.com. No doubt there'll be a massive picture of you standing next door to your statue and going, look what I won. <laughs> At least you should do. The spot that I won the Emmy for is up on my website if anybody's interested. It's, uh, and it's tagged. So Brilliant. All right, we'll can, check that out. Yep. And... Next in my illustrious list of guests is Dave Spears from GeForceSoftware.com. Hello. How you doing, Dave? I'm all right. Not as good a week as PJ. No, well, that that's kind of hard to beat, isn't it, really? <laughs> well, I have to say, we were up for a BAFTA. Ooh. This will surprise you. No, my nipper got the call from the BBC for one of our animations saying, oh, we'd like to uh, nominate you for a children's BAFTA. Mm, wow. Which was pretty cool, but she didn't win. But she did win a gold medal in swimming the day after, so it kind of made up for it, really. Yeah, that's cool. Did you get to go up to BAFTA? No, no. It was like, I think she was she was in the last 10, and the last four got to go up to the BAFTAs, uh, and then and then the winner was announced there, which I think would have been pretty stressful on a 12-year-old. Yeah, BAFTA by post, far better idea. That's going, if you don't win, you're walking home tonight. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to take the hotel. Yeah, it's, a hot, it's either the hot dog van or... The grill at the Savoy, depending on how it goes, yeah. Hey, well, anyway, um, Dave Spears, of course, G4Software.com. And bought any more synths this week, by the way? Uh, a D550 and the MKS70 turned up, but Chris is withholding them from me because I'm busy with other things. <laughs> He's not letting you get, get your hands on them. No, he, he came up in the, in the vehicle and he said, uh, they're in there, you can have a look, but you can't have them. I think the volume <laughs> needs replacing on one of them, so it's probably a good thing. Yeah. Because that way you can just get on with the work you've got to do, right? Yes. Okay, right. I'm going to um, complete our, uh, what do you call it? Well, a quintet of guests by trying to get Mark. Here we go. Hello. Is everybody there? I'm here. Hi. I don't know what happened, Mark. You were the straw that broke the camel's back. But there's no need to feel responsible, Mark. Just we're happy to have you. How are you doing, Mark? Tinley. I'm good, yeah. Very good. I'm just reading what they're saying about me in the podcast uh, in the podcast live panel. It says Mark is having a visionary moment. I am. <laughs> oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> always good to be visionary. I've always been curious about the theorem. Luckily, with some recent advances in technology, I've been able to make one of my own. To be more precise, what I created is a theremin simulator using my laptop computer, my Roland JV1080 synthesizer, and the Wiimote control from our Wii gaming console. At $35, the Wiimote is an amazing piece of technology. Uh, that was Ken Moore on YouTube, who was telling us how he made uh, a theremin out of his Wiimote, which, um, you know, I mean, it's not particularly uh, groundbreaking. And I, I, theremins are kind of, you know, you can t I can take them or leave them. I've never played one. I think I should probably try. But the thing that I thought was quite interesting was he sort of pointed out that you can buy a Wiimote separately for like 30 bucks and it's got all this incredible technology. And then you can buy, ver you can get various freeware apps that will convert that into MIDI control data. 
And I think we might have talked about this a long time back when the Wii first came out that there were people who were going to start applying it to music making. And um, I wondered uh, whether anybody might be tempted at 30 bucks. It's got to be worth a try because I was thinking you have to buy the whole thing, wouldn't you, really? But you don't. Dave, can you see perhaps um, any of your clients kind of waving nunchucks around on stage and controlling anything with them? Quite funny, wouldn't it? I don't know. I I, I thought it was really neat, actually. I was quite impressed. Because some of it, there was also some videos. There's a little um, application by a kind guy called Mike Verdone, which is called Wii to MIDI. This is an OS X. There are PC versions of them. Uh, of you know of similar software and there's a load of videos of people showing it and there's some really responsive stuff there's um some dj scratching stuff and there's also just a guy um mapping it to ableton live and he's getting some pretty good results so um i don't know are, are we ready mark are you ready are you ready to get a wee and start experimenting uh yes i am are you saying i i don't know if i followed are you saying you don't need to buy anything other than the wiimote and you could plug the wiimote straight into a computer and use all that technology without actually having to buy a wii and learn how to use it that's very true that's exactly what i say you because i was looking in the other day because um, i'm interested now though. yeah because like i think it's 30 quid it's 30 quid or 30 dollars you know whichever the way yeah but you couldn't go far wrong with that i mean i don't want to learn any more technology <laughs> No, I suppose not. Wave your hands around, though. I like the idea of a bit of hand-waving. And somebody's just put up in the Wii board, Audio Nerd, the Wii Balance Board could be nice, too. You could have Wii Balance Board to MIDI. <laughs> that would be superb, wouldn't it? <laughs> now, that would look a bit better on stage. Can you imagine using that? PJ, what do you reckon? That would be that would be really cool. <laughs> yeah, I was just over at my brother brother-in-law's house last week, and he's got one of those Wii Balance Boards. That would be fantastic. Actually, thinking about it, think, thinking about it in in the world of composition, you know, we always have, there's always a joke, isn't there, that people who are commissioning new consoles they put the A and R knob on it so that the guy from the record company can just twiddle the knob and not have you know think like they're doing something. But actually, you could use a Wii to MIDI thing for somebody who's totally particularly for film music, who could sort of gesture or the director could gesture and, and control something that he was trying to articulate. And do you think maybe it would be good for stuff to picture where perhaps you were waving, you know, filters or whatever it is that you might be doing? There might be an, a, a use for something that was three-dimensionally based that only cost 30 bucks. You know, perhaps. I mean, you, you could possibly, if you could get the gestures down well enough, you might be able to do something like uh, expression, you know, control number 11 uh, well with a, or or control number 7 volume, or the mod wheel or something with a with a gesture. Um, but I'm not sure. It'd be interesting to see. I like the second video you sent along with the guy controlling Massive with two different sets of Wimotes. That was pretty cool. Yeah, The one underneath as well I thought was really good. He was, he was using... Uh, one of the Vienna libraries. Yeah, that was good because it re- the expressiveness that it gave him for the brass and the timp rolls and stuff was actually, it felt, even though the sound itself, you know, wasn't particularly cutting edge, the expressiveness that the Wii gave really made it sound a lot more authentic. Yeah, it was giving those kind of crescendos like um, PJ was saying. Mm. Rich, what about you? Would you be, um, would, would you be uh, um, prepared to be spotted waving a Wii while you uh, expressed your way through some... Uh, orchestral articulations uh maybe as on a lark but not not for real i mean i couldn't actually see this video so i don't know exactly what it looks like and i don't have a wii but i can kind of imagine based on the descriptions of both that i can and uh 
I'm interested in theremin, but I'm not that interested in we as a theremin. Yeah, no, I suppose I think there's the, the resolution. You could hear in the version that uh, I did get to watch. I don't know why I took it down. Maybe re-edited it or something. Um, but you could you could certainly hear the stepping in that, and the, the resolution would be finer. But um, certainly for controller things, it might be very interesting. The whole idea of the theremin is that it's supposed to be ethereal, isn't it? And it's supposed to work, I mean, without going too far, like like new thought on it. It's supposed to work with your aura. So as you basically bring your energy field closer to the theremin the theremin responds by changing pitch so surely okay you know i mean i've got a, a a theremin in my iphone which i have to say is rubbish and it steps i mean i don't want to be negative about it i just think that putting these things into these handheld devices and calling them theremins is actually a limitation of what the technology is in the Wii and and all of this uh What's it called? The balancing technology and stuff. I mean, there's more we can do with it. Yes. I mean, I think this is just obviously the easiest way to illustrate for the, the chap. You know, that was his first experiment. But that's as the other demos, um, videos on the uh, MikeVerdone.ca uh, website show, there's a lot more applications. And it's surprising that perhaps there aren't more, and particularly when you consider how cheap they are. I mean, it's just a pair of AA batteries and a, and a, a Bluetooth connection, and you could have it kind of rocking in some way in your MIDI. Um, I mean, I've always found that because expressive, obviously, foot pedals. I don't know, Rich, you're a, you're a player. Do you use um, volume foot pedals or MIDI volume pedals for that sort of orchestral expressivity? Um, I'm actually useless with pedals for anything other than piano pedaling. I, I, I'm horrible with a wah-wah. I'm terrible with a volume pedal. I've, I've just, my feet are not, built that way when i'm playing keyboards it's just weird i'm i'm not uh, i have uh, even with a hammond i'm not that good with a volume pedal it's just not something i'm just since you ask one limb one limb too many to think about well it's just that i'm so deeply ingrained i mean i started learning to pedal a piano at, you know as soon as my feet could reach the floor so i'm just really really used to that as an interface yeah i can use a piano pedal as a switch is about as much as i can do mm. For other things, no, no, as well enough. as for pedaling piano. Dave Spears, do you um, do you see maybe an augmentation to your uh, Kurzweil MIDI board with one of these? Probably not. But I thought the most interesting thing about this is that when I've seen people use like the air control or a D beam or you know theremin, they always look a bit of a knob. Because <laughs> actually, if you if you've got something in your hand, you certainly look less of a knob. Yes, I know what you're saying. Do you think perhaps uh, Yanni could do with a couple of these? Uh, God forbid. <laughs> It'd be quite entertaining, though, wouldn't it? It, would, it really would I'm be. I'm sorry, that's an obscure reference. Me and uh, Dave were swapping um, Yanni um, videos on YouTube, and I'd never experienced Yanni before, who is a, a sort of, I suppose, a sort of light orchestral MIDI git. I don't know, it's a bit... <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps I shouldn't be so hard on the man, but uh, I couldn't help but wonder while he was sitting there in the uh, in the Parthenon or wherever it was with the Royal Phil Phil Philharmonic Orchestra behind him that he was playing these really dreadful brass samples off his um, emulator. Just didn't kind of make any sense to me. But anyway, I'm aside and I'm being, being very bitchy and really unnecessary. But anyway, uh, the Wii Mote, I reckon I'm going to get one and try it because then, because um, my partner wanted to get a Wii, but we were sort of worried about, oh, and if you need two, then it's going to, two remotes, it all starts to add up. But if I can buy one on the business, then it, it, it sort of makes sense. And then I can try it out here. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I like this idea. A good excuse to buy a Wii, it's purely for research and music making. Yes. Of course. Exactly. <laughs> 
Blimey, that was pretty racy, wasn't it? You know, that was Jordan Rudess who um, posted that video, and that was played on one of the new Korg Nano Keys. He speeded it up. You reckon? <laughs> well, so that's what somebody says in the video. I hadn't actually yeah, thought about that, but you could be right. You could actually be right. No, 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 no. No, <laughs> no I don't think so either. First of all, it ain't that hard to play, and second of all, no. he's really good. Yeah, well, both of those things are are, are certainly true. But the nano keys, uh, we're supposed to get them in for review, actually. We were promised them a couple of weeks ago, and I was hoping to be first on the web with some reviews, but we haven't had the set in. I'm hoping maybe they'll come this week or next, and then I can really um, try and get hold of them, because uh, they look kind of fun anyway, and I like the idea of throwing them in the laptop and in the laptop bag and what have you. But um, So that was the kind of technology part of it. And the other part of it was um, how... How difficult is it to play well on small keyboards? Is it a kind of you've just got to practice at it, or is it once you've? Because I find just changing actual uh, QWERTY keyboards just totally screws my typing up. Rich, I mean you're a, you're a keyboard player. I mean, do you have any smaller keyboards with actually different key um, dimensions that you just can't get on with, or can you pretty much play on anything? I didn't have any trouble with melodicas, and I didn't have any trouble with a Casio VL tone, and I don't imagine I'd have any trouble with this, as long as you're not asking me to play, you know, a Beethoven sonata on it. <laughs> um, uh, I could certainly do more or less what he did. Um, cool. yeah, the interesting piece of uh, serendipity in all this is that this week I was made a Facebook buddy by the guy who is his uh, Jordan Rudess's keyboard tech, a guy named Gianluca. And uh, he was asking me about the nano key and what I thought of it. And obviously, I haven't played it. But uh, that's why it's very bizarre that this should come up this week. How strange. But uh, no, not the, I mean, once it takes a minute to get used to the closer spacing and the smaller keys. But if all you're going to do is rip around like he just did, then yeah, you can do that. Hmm. How, about, how about you? It's actually easy. It's actually easier in some way, some ways than a normal size keyboard because the keys generally have virtually no resistance and they're closer together, so you can stretch bigger intervals. Oh well, that's true. Good for Scott Joplin. I suppose, Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> although not so good for the for the actual stretch. PJ, how do you find with um, moving keyboard sizes? Yeah, pretty much what what Rich just said. Oh, okay. um, it's it, it wouldn't be any trouble to to rip around that quickly on a nano key and like. It's, it's actually in some ways a lot easier. I think the oddest keyboard that I ever got used to um, was I, I had a Roland MC505 for a little while that I used mostly for programming, but I learned how to actually play those keys. And those keys had a, they were sort of a thick one-fourth inch plastic that had a lot of resistance, actually, because they were mostly for drone programming. But uh, I was able to rip around on those pretty well, actually, which uh, was surprising. Right, okay. But, you know what's weird about this call? What? Uh, PJ sounds like he's been speeded yeah, up. Yeah, that, that bit just sounded like he got sped up. I think they must be um, prioritizing some other kind of packet data across the Atlantic from where you are, PJ. That was really unusual. <laughs> huh. Very, Interesting. Very strange. You've got, you've got some, um, some dropouts and stuff on your line. We'll stick with it for a bit and see how it goes. Dave, um, Spears, any... Uh, I guess, I don't know, you're a pretty good keyboard player, but um, do you kind of have an optimum keyboard size, or doesn't it matter? No, normal keyboard will do. Right. I, I've used some of the MIDI kit. There, there was a little Yamaha, little, was it CSO1 or something, that had small keys. Yeah. And in fact, the GX1, the very top keyboard um, of the three, that has some small keys as well. 
But um, yeah, it was quite entertaining. Jordan Rudis is somebody who kind of Rudess, sorry, is somebody whose name keeps cropping up all the time. He's almost like a sort of professional endorser. <laughs> sort of approaches every single company going, and they're always kind of going, "Hey, Jordan uses our stuff." And when we took Wakeman to Nam, it was amazing because Wakeman was doing his kind of human arpeggio thing. And immediately we finished, this guy came up and went, hey, man, Jordan Runes plays faster than you, man. <laughs> Is he like the Shredder? <laughs> Maybe that's his nickname. I guess so. Jordan, guess yeah. So. But the, uh, yeah. the other topic, uh, and, and this is perhaps slightly less, um, what's the word? Um, uh, uh, um, it's a bit more flippant. Is I couldn't help but notice there was a little bit of grunting going on in the background of that video. And obviously, you know, Jordan, when he's concentrating on doing that, you know, as with a lot of people, I'm trying to think there are a couple of other keyboard players who do that. Is it um, Chick Career or somebody? There is somebody who actually kind of plays and they articulate at the same time. Um, not Keith Jarrett. Keith Jarrett. It's not necessarily um, mm-hmm. what they want the audience to hear, but it just comes out like that. I guess it's, you know, like doing karate or whatever. You just vocalize in a certain way. And I thought um, it might be fun to find out whether anybody uh, in our panel had um, any... Any playing habits, whether they are vocal or maybe, you know, like playing the wah-wah and you can't help but mouth the articulations you're trying to do, whether any of us had anything like that going on in our in our playing styles. Mark, um, you're a guitarist. <laughs> I've never seen you play. I'm not jumping at you because I know anything that you, you that I don't want you to, to, <laughs> don't want you to tell me. But how do you feel? When you do the wah pedal, can you, can you keep your mouth closed or is it impossible? Can. Really? I'm very careful not to do anything because, of course, I grew up with the age of punk and it just wouldn't have been cool to do any of that. Oh, gee, no. I, I suppose sucking my cheekbones in, looking moody and staring at the floor, I'm quite good at that. <laughs> of course, you couldn't have your mouth open while you were playing at a pump gig because of, of all of that no. stuff that used to happen from the audience. They used to, well, let's not go there. But, but also, like, the goth, the goth thing as well. After that, I sort of moved into being a goth and I was in this band called Tabitha's Nightmare. And I was the singer, actually, and I used to just play power chords every so often. So I'd do nothing with the guitar for, like, half a song, and then I'd suddenly go, and everyone would be really impressed. And the less you do, the more impressed they are when you actually do something. Did you have a special face for those chords? Of course. (laughs) Sucked in cheekbones, moody look, (laughs) stare at the floor. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. I I appreciate your honesty, Mark. I think that's, uh, that's... I think I grunt a bit when I'm playing beats, but uh, I'm not sure because I never, you know, it's not something that I actually have a mic open for at the same time. So I'm not, you know, I wouldn't, when I've heard stuff back, I'm not going, oh no, how terribly embarrassing. So maybe I'll try that sometime. There'll be a load of sound of me bashing keyboards and and sort of making terribly embarrassing mouth noises or whatever. Um, I've I've discovered that um, if I'm really guilty about something, sit and make strange noises, actually. Really? (laughs) Like, and, I, and I'll find myself thinking about something I feel guilty about, and then I kind of go, Urgh! and then I go, what the fuck? And I'm like, oh my God, that was me. It just comes out inadvertently. Yeah, it's kind of embarrassing, but hey, whatever. Uh, well, I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> Dave Spears, you're a drummer. Drummers make loads of noises. Do you make noise? Or do you pull, yeah, do you pull a silly God. face? Uh, well, probably both. Um, no, it definitely making noise. I was really embarrassed when they did uh, the guy that we were in the studio and the guy uh, just did the overhead mics 
and you could just hear me kind of go uh, 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 like this and it didn't i never i was sort of always embarrassed by this until i heard the john bonham tapes and he does exactly the same okay or did exactly the same oh. sorry but yeah so that completely validated my existence. so when you first went to the studio i'm p- trying to picture the scene you got your first kind of money together for a demo tape to play the drums and you turn up the band are all there they're all really excited drummer gets to go first was there a really horrible moment when um, everybody looked at you going, God, I didn't realise you made... Or you looked at everybody and they all knew you made the noise, but you never realised. This was the kind of first very big budget thing we did in the Roundhouse studio. So it's costing oh, 50 quid a day. And this guy was kind of going, what's that noise? <laughs> and so he was sending the engineer out to kind of change the mic, do this, go get more food, do this, do that and whatnot. And then eventually they kind of went, you went, solo those. And all you could hear was this kind of... <clears throat> <laughs> it was really obviously <laughs> embarrassing. Like, everyone looked at me and was just like, oh, shit. Get the- <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I can't, I can't picture, I can't imagine how humiliating that must have been the first time. That, that, but, but, well, thank you very much for sharing that. <laughs> what about faces? Because you must have had been on videos and seen yourself on stage and stuff. Because some people yeah, like just look some people, really grumpy. Oh well, that, yeah, concentrating. Because my my friend Nan plays drums with the Cure, and he just looks really bored. I, I'm, I'm sure he's not. I mean, he has been with them ten years, I suppose, so it's possible. But I mean, he's always done that. Whenever he's played drums, ever since I remember when I used to be in a band with him, you know, years and years ago, he just looks really bored and kind of like he's not interested. But it's just the face he puts on when he's concentrating. It's just we one of those things. An absolutely blinding gig. At, uh, I can't remember where it was, somewhere in town, um, subterranean rock garden or somewhere, I don't know. And we had this guitarist who was this kind of beautiful-looking black guy with amazing hair, you know. And, I mean, all the women just loved him to death. And uh, afterwards, he's helping me out with the gear, and these two chicks come up, and he kind of looks at me sort of knowingly, kind of thinking, you know, they're coming up to speak to me. And one walks up to me, and uh, they both walk up to me, and one says, you look so moody when you play drums. It's really horny. (laughs) (laughs) And this poor bloke just didn't know where to look. (laughs) I didn't know what to say, actually, in response. (laughs) Ah, well, classic. Rich I, uh, Rich and PJ, can you top that? <laughs> Go ahead, PJ. <laughs> Go ahead, PJ. Come on, let's hear it. Well, I top that. I have a slightly, sim- slightly similar story, but no, I can't quite top that. Um, about 10 years ago, I was um, hired on to do a, a studio gig where I came in and played on a guy's album, and uh, he had kind of a, an entourage, and there were a couple of, couple of girls sitting in the control room, and I'm sitting there with a a pile of keyboards working out a part and then uh they roll tape and i'm playing some hammond organ part and i get done and uh i look over and these two girls are sitting on the couch and they're giggling and they're kind of red-faced and i i knew one of them so i said uh wani what's up what <laughs> what's going on and she says well, we we're watching you play and we realized uh pretty much what it might be like to sleep with you <laughs> <laughs> I got and I got really so I got really self conscious and so for a little while after that I tried to control you know my facial expressions when I was playing but then I then I realized after the fact actually they were giving me a compliment so <laughs> Rich mm-hmm. so I've seen you play you you don't have you you just look really happy and kind of engaged in the gig. Right. I mean, I guess you must know the songs really well, but um, do, is there any different when you're, when you're concentrating and you perhaps don't know the parts so well, or are you just kind of 
pretty much on it the whole time. If I'm reading a chart, I might be screwing my face up a bit. Ah, uh, yeah, okay. But um, based on the multitude of photographs I have of me and videos playing in Chic, I don't appear to have any bizarre facial habits much when I'm playing. Maybe I tighten my jaw a little bit at certain times, but uh, nothing terribly, <laughs> nothing terribly, uh, nothing terribly exotic. And I don't recall ever being uh, compared to uh, sexual moments or any of that. <laughs> I think it's funny. One of the guys in the chat room just copped the fact that I'm eating breakfast while I'm doing the podcast. Uh, he says, "What's Rich eating?" Yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, guest forty forty three twenty four. Um, I'm not sure what Rich is eating, but it's I'm sure it's very tasty. It is. It is, and it's a lot of things. Don't change the subject. <laughs> ah! uh, well, that's enough about my breakfast, though. I know that was a little bit flippant, but I mean, obviously, Jordan does the same thing, you know, because he's. But I'm sure I've heard it on a lot of a lot of occasions. Certainly, drummers. And um, and I think we've all probably got that. And I, I remember there was the uh, there are the people who just cannot help but make the wah face when they do the wah, and that actually extends to opening and closing the filter on a synth as well. Compulsory, really. Compulsory. Some some do, some don't. Anyway, Korg Nano keys and Korg Nano things are out soon. Uh, I'm not actually sure when. There's, but there was an announcement that they were shipping, so I'm guessing they must be shipping. And I think that's kind of worldwide. They have been dribbling out a little bit here and there up to now, but uh, now apparently they're all going everywhere. I'd just like to say thank you to our sponsors, Yamaha Music Production. They've been with us for an awfully long time. I really value their continued support, so thank you very much to them. And I wanted to draw your attention to the Pocket Track 2G, which is a very, very small digital recorder. It's USB. It records with a stereo mic. It's got a built-in limiter, records to WMA, MP3, uh, all sorts of things. It's got a built-in speaker. It's absolutely brilliant for dictaphone, recording live stuff, backing up podcasts, all that kind of thing. What's what's really cool is the the USB kind of slides out. You've got this little slide, and you can just put the whole thing directly into your computer, so you don't need any other lead. It comes with a carry case. comes with Cubase AI. You can find more about it at yamahasynth.com forward slash products forward slash pocket track and that's track spelt t-r-a-k go check it out and uh, once again thanks very much to yamaha music production for the sponsorship of this podcast another topic this one i I actually don't know where this came from i just found myself looking at the compass point studios website and compass point for those who uh, perhaps don't know is well it, it used to be the kind of pinnacle of luxury recording it's in nassau in the bahamas um owned by chris brat Blackwell. It was started in 1977. Chris Blackwell, um, who founded Island Records and um, the classic Grace Jones albums record there. Lots of stuff was recorded there. I think Chris, you know, all sorts of people uh, there. Uh, it, it sort of went a bit into disrepair disrepair um during the late 80s 80s into the early 90s and then he uh installed a couple of people terry and sherry manning terry who's uh, i believe is quite a, a producer of some note and he spent hundreds of thousands sorting out now it's back on track it's got his business back and everything and i was looking at the uh, at the spec they've got a neve v348 input 48 bus in a studio and in b studio uh, an ssl 4048 48 input 32 bus g compute with eng series equalizers the weekly lockout being 15 grand 15 and a half grand per studio that's book rate obviously 
And um, I, there was this rather lovely little, well, I'll, I'll just read it. Rise in the morning for a swim in the warm tropical waters. Stroll or jog along a beautiful beach. Enjoy a gourmet breakfast under a palm-covered veranda. Then take the short walk to one of the world's most famous, spacious and well-equipped studios to begin your day's work. At any time you need a break, just step outside and gaze across the endless seascape of ocean blue. Breathe in the fresh sea air. Join your family in a romp in the waves and then come back refreshed. When the day's work is finally finished, a leisurely stroll home under the canopy of incredibly brilliant stars. <laughs> Sounds good, doesn't it? Wow. But <laughs> the next question was, does it make a difference? Does, does, do you think it actually helps you work? Because now, nowadays there aren't many people who book into a studio and kind of write the stuff as they go because it's too expensive. But in terms of actually getting the work done, is that sort of thing kind of something you look for into a recording studio or what? But first of all, I suppose I should ask, has anyone ever been there? I've not. Right, this one, no. No. Got a good story, though. Oh, go on, tell us. Okay, so I was working with this guy John Martin, who was one of my who's one of my all time favourite singer songwriters, and uh, he had just come back from Compass Point, and uh, he was actually mixing the album at Genetic, which was Russian's place, and uh, I was chatting away to him, and I said, and John liked his drink. I think he's even lost a leg due to his drink now, but um, he was quite oiled up. And I said, so, you know, this track, this Climb the Wall track, you know, this is another kind of brilliant broken relationship song, or it seems to be, you know, kind of, was that what inspired it? And he said, no, laddie, what used to happen is um, Studio B is so small that the engineers have this trick, they can put their hands on the desk and they can walk up the wall while their hands are still on the desk. (laughs) (laughs) And that was it. And what I thought was a kind of real deep and meaningful song was written about these engineers having a laugh. Ah. Well, the studio does seem to be popular with kind of rappers and um, big megastars, you know, Lo- J-Lo and, you know, all these various people have been at ACDC. Um, I mean, uh, who wouldn't want to go there? Rich, you must have worked in some pretty amazing studios. Do you find that um, that sort of luxury helps or does it just make your stay more enjoyable and it's actually harder to get to work because you take much longer over breakfast, lunch and every other meal on time when you're outside of the control room? Does it make a difference? Yes, you want to go outside. Um, does it help you to get the project done quicker? Probably not. Um, the resort studio and the history of the resort studio goes back to pretty much when Compass Point was built. You had Caribou Ranch in Colorado. Uh, at some point, they built Montserrat. Um, the, the whole resort studio concept goes back to a time when music budgets were huge, the business was rolling in money, and artists could take as long as they damned pleased, as long as they did well with the last record, and there were no high expectations on them to save money or do the album at home or any such thing like that. And of course, uh, and I, uh, I've worked in a lot of great studios, and I've been to one, maybe one or two that were considered minor resort studios, but, but, uh, and I didn't have any trouble with staying inside and working but if they do have an effect it's that they make you want to go outside and and as we said the other week about creative processes walking away from something is often a good thing that well that's true so um you know uh i've never been to compass point looks nice uh i don't imagine i i think today there are fewer people than ever uh, uh with the kinds of budgets that would allow them to go off to some lovely destination like this just for that purpose i think it makes a massive difference 
You think, you, in terms of actual work rate, I mean, do you find that people get more work done, though? I mean, because I'm not sure. Depending on where you are, I don't necessarily think you get more work done in a studio, but I think it makes a massive difference to people's creativity, or the people I've worked with it does, and moving people around and getting them to... Uh, record in different locations is always good, I think. I've not really experienced that sort of poshness. I mean, I remember um, I obviously work out at Real World um, occasionally, and it's always nice to be fed well and have that sort of bit, the social bit in the in the in the main studio. But that's not necessarily something you're going to get from a luxury studio if you're the only artist in there. You know, there's not necessarily going to be other people around. I just, I mean, that sort of money is really, really, really um, just. Yeah, but these days, why not just go on holiday, pick somewhere really nice? I mean, we did this with Duran. We went to the south of France. We hired a villa. We found one with a suitable room. And then anybody that wants to do this should really talk to me. <laughs> well, you're <laughs> an expert. I built in them a big Pro Tools system and two vans full of gear. It all went out there. And then we sat in this gorgeous villa recording stuff. And that was their, you know, their reunion when the five of them first got together to play for the first time in... I don't know, 15 years or whatever it was. Um, it was in this villa in the south of France. They walked into this room and it was beautiful kind of outbuilding to this place full of pro tools and keyboards and all the gear we had shipped out. So we built a studio somewhere we wanted it. So pick an inspiring place and then get somebody to put a studio together for you there. The technology's here now to do that. So it will just take your bloody laptop and go well, and sit that's in the very, bar. very true. I mean, there is, there is that. I mean, that's all eminently possible uh, these days, of course. Uh, and, and I wondered, you know, these places must be really suffering because, I mean, that's what people are presumably doing all over the place. But, I mean, I'd love to go out and check it out. PJ, have you ever had that sort of um, uber-luxurious studio experience? Uh, yeah, I have. And I think that depending on the artist, it can, it can definitely, it can definitely focus the artist if, if for instance, they're paying for it or somebody (laughs) close to them is paying for it. (laughs) Yeah. To be in a, in a situation like that. And certainly if you have the, you know, the right staff, the right engineer, the right producers, the right people around to facilitate that can definitely help things go faster than working in a smaller project studio environment but it it all depends on the on the artist commitment to their project maybe you track there and not mix there i don't know how would you how do you think they do it the other or the other way around maybe you know because if you go into a place well it it i guess it all depends you know if you're if you're tracking an entire band all at once then yeah maybe you do need a larger facility and you want you want something good but um i I suppose it uh it all depends you just need a bigger protocol system sorry you just need a bigger Pro Tools system if you're going to track. You don't need a larger facility. Sorry, PJ. No, I, I suppose that's true. Crazy. I mean, I guess the thing that, um, obviously, if you're mixing, because what happens a lot of the times now is people, um, when they're mixing, the sort of, the promotion starts because the artist is obviously hanging around quite a lot. So what tends to happen, you know, they're mixing stuff and then they wheel in journalists and stylists and all this stuff is happening while you're doing it. I guess if you're in Nassau, that's going to be, that's just not going to happen, is it really? No. Mm. I don't know what I'd book that for other than a vacation. <laughs> Serious, because I can, you know, we can make the record at home. Sure, sure. But obviously people do. Right, and I don't have to go there to do that. There was a time where in the studio business you had to go to the studio because they had the gear and we didn't. Those days are long behind us, so nobody has to go to a studio. The studios in the major cities are having a hard time keeping their doors open and the lights on. 
So I got to yeah, I got to believe sure. most most of these resort studios have to be, have to either be gone or on their way to it. Mm, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, the, or they're not or they're not dependent on the studio income in order to maintain the facility. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That would make sense. Looks lovely though. I wouldn't mind. Um. I don't know. Mixing. Let me be editing a couple of podcasts out there or something. <laughs> well, now you see. Now you're talking. We'll Let's go to Compass Point. Maybe we can talk. Maybe we can talk them into us being uh, funding us going out there and doing a live podcast. Well, while yeah. you're buying that we on the business, yeah, just pop a ticket for NASA in there as well. Pop yeah. off the airport, buy a handful of plane tickets. <laughs> couple, couple of tents on the beach next door to Compass Point. There, nothing would give me greater pleasure. I can really tell you that. That's for sure. Uh, but anyway, um, so Compass Point, uh, there was a funny story um, because uh, on something called Upsetter.net, which is Lee Scratch Perry's uh, management or agents or something, apparently what happened was uh, the uh, TomTom Club were out there recording and there was some sort of incident with Lee Scratch Perry and uh, there was a, a chap out there who basically said something disparaging about Lee uh, Scratch Perry and uh, it all kind of got a bit, there was a bit of a mess anyway and uh, Apparently that night, a small hurricane hit Nassau and Tina was awoken close to midnight. Looking out the window, she saw an amazing sight. Lee Scratch Perry was outside in the lightning and thunder next to a huge tree, wrapping the trunk with wire and snapping Polaroids of himself. He then stuck the snapshots to the tree, which was this huge, weird kind of tree with branches sticking out in all directions. After this bizarre stunt, things took a turn for worse at the compass point. First, they found chicken's blood spattered all over the studio walls and the church next door. Then the studio began to malfunction for more than 10 years, world-famous actors had recorded there without any troubles and now suddenly walls and equipment were ruined by sea salt. By 1987, Compass Point had to be cleaned for a major clean-up and didn't reopen until 1992. There we go. That's uh, on uh, Upsetter.net. So maybe it was uh, some kind of voodoo, man. Who knows? A curse. <laughs> Along that same subject of having stuff by the water, uh, first of all, our studio at Niles is on the water and so there is some humid salt air to deal with. But I just saw a YouTube video uh, about pianos in Cuba, and uh, they had Chucho Valdez talking about how he's got a uh, sort of tropic-proof piano that's been overbuilt in some areas to combat the inevitable degradation that comes from the moist, salty air that is constantly blowing in off the ocean, I guess, when you live in Cuba. I've never been to Cuba. know where it is. Um, So along the... And and if you've ever had a patch bay... In a studio near near the water, you know that you're that it's taking its toll constantly. Right, the water in this. That's interesting, actually. Well, with those all hurricane was, season as well, it'd be a nightmare. I was looking at the tires on my car earlier on, and um, and uh, they look really flat. And uh, and I thought I've got to go and check the pressure in them because I realised I had new tires fitted in the summer. And I haven't checked the um, air pressure in the tyres since. And now that the temperature's dropped from, like, fitting on a hot day to now it's really cold, of course they're going to go flat, aren't they? Hmm. So yep. by the same token, pianos in places like that must go absolutely mental. The tuning must be all over the place. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do they deal with that? How do they you get it, it in? Yeah. You, you tune it every morning. Tune it every morning. Wow, that's another expense. Bloody hell. If I'm recording piano as a primary instrument, it's getting tuned every morning. I don't care if you're in the middle of New York City. Right. Yep. I guess. That's a hot tip for Cuban musicians, then, isn't it? Become a piano tuner. (laughs) 
Uh, that, in fact, is the Steiner Parker Synthicon, which is a 3VCO mono, um, which was made between the y- years of 1975 and 1979. Um, that camp was on uh, YouTube via Matrix Synth, which is via V. Gamuse. And um, I'd never seen one, never heard of it, uh, never seen one in the flesh. I've, I've, I've heard of them, but I wasn't aware of what they could do or anything. And it just sort of got me thinking on the, um, what's the rarest synthesizer you've ever had the pleasure to play, listen to, or be exposed to? Um, I guess, Dave, we should start with you, because you are so um, so immersed in synthesizers. Yeah, uh, it's got to be the GX1 for me. Uh, the Yamaha, the GX1? Yeah, that's probably the rarest I've ever played. And that you used that on your uh, VSM, didn't you? Uh, yeah, it's um, on a forthcoming expansion pack. Don't ask me when. <laughs> I won't. Good, good. But uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to think because I don't, re- I, I don't recall. I guess the probably the, the the rarest one is maybe I don't know how rare it is. The Synthetor Vol- Polyvox. I guess they're kind of rare kind of fun to play with but i'm not sure rich how about yourself well i've got a lot of answers to this i've been around the gx1 i've been around the uh ems system 100 i've operated moog modular number three mini moog number 89 um i've worked with an arp 2500 i've used surge aries polyfusion modulars um, I don't know. That's all getting pretty rare. I saw Roland system. I believe it was called system 800 modular system back when it was new. Wow. Kur- Kurzweil K250. Uh, all the Yamaha synths uh, from CS series, even before the CS series, including the SY1, which had vibrato when you uh, moved your finger back and forth across the key at the speed at which you were moving your finger. Synthi, you know, all the EMS stuff, Synthi, AKS, VCS3. I, I've been around synthesizers a really long time, and I've been around pretty much of what there's been that interests me. Well, some, I mean, because... Uh, Oberheim 2 Voice. Oberheim 2 Voice is one of my favorite synthesizers of all time. Been around that quite a bit. Have you, do you possess one or, um, or not? No. No, I wish I did. Hmm. I must admit, I mean, some of those Moog systems as well. I mean, you so, there was a time probably... About ten years ago, when you get a, a good Moog, um, I don't know, whatever that modular fifty-five or whatever, and they would just they go for an enormous amount of money, absolutely and, and hugely rare. I think those were. Yeah, yeah. The the one I had was more like a thirty-five, um, the the number three version. And then I was at the uh, State University at Albany in the seventies, where they had a Moog modular that filled up five refrigerator size racks. <laughs> I, it was around that one as well. What's that um, EMS Synthi uh, 100? Is that the one? The one that's the size that of... A, that? Yeah, it was a huge modular rig that they built. It was like a desk with, with modules. It wasn't unlike that's the That's got to be the... Because I remember uh, at one of the trade shows, we filmed one that had been restored, and it had a, a start... I think we've still got the video somewhere, and it's got... It had valve counters in it, and it had also uh, an ignition key, so you couldn't play it unless you had the key to it. And I forget which one is. They they have various names, isn't it? like Daytona and all these other sort of names. Uh, Mark JXP, just by the way, um, pr- got me to pronounce Moog. I, I it's an English thing. Moog. We say Moog. Not many people say Moog. They say it in America. There, there's a studio in Los Angeles called Ecstasy that's owned by a uh, Japanese fellow who's extremely eccentric and a major collector. I may have mentioned it before, uh-huh. and he had 
the single most impressive collection of gear I've ever seen in one place, starting with synths, extending through samplers, and including vintage Neve consoles. He had just the most incredible pile of gear, and almost all of it was painted black, <laughs> including the $3,500 <laughs> Oak Moog Theremin. Not, not that little son of, not, not that little one that they sell the kit, but they had this big one made out of North Carolina oak that they were selling for $3,500, and this guy bought one and painted it black. Oh, man. He had, he had black-faced Akai samplers, that he, uh, like 15 of them, that he had pulled the faceplates off of, had painted black, re-silkscreened, and then put the faceplates back on. Wow, that's obsessive behavior. He had black-faced Apogee AD8000 interfaces. He had black-faced everything. He had an LA-2A with a black face on it. Um, it and, he, and, he had, and he had this closet of the, the history of synthesis and guitar pedals and stuff. It was unbelievable. Did he wear and white? He posted, I, just, I never met the man. Ah, he, he was probably there. You just couldn't see him. He was probably just dressed in black, standing in a corner, just watching you. Right, he was a ghost player. <laughs> and could you get a note out of the uh, Synth I 100? I didn't actually play it. Okay. I didn't actually play it. I was standing next to it, looking it over real good, but I didn't actually play it. But uh, sure I could. I'm pretty sure we got some sound on the um, Synth 100 uh, when we filmed it, but I can't remember. It's such a long time ago. I did the opening of that synth museum years ago in the UK, and he had one. And it was my job to kind of run around before the video crew got there and uh, set sounds up on all the various synths. And that was the only one that kind of just completely <laughs> threw me. You couldn't get it to make a noise. I think, I think even Matthias Becker, who was doing the voiceover thing, he walked in and walked up to it, and all he could get was a kind of farting sound out of it, which made me feel a little better, but not much. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, I we did an interview with uh, Adrian Utley from Porter's Head some time ago, and he said um, that... Uh, that part of their sound check routine, um, which obviously if they're doing long wheel tours, is uh, is to get the the most convincing fart sound out of the Mini Moog, which they find is the is the best synthesizer for making fart sounds at sound check. Just just an aside there. This has got really nothing to do with anything at all. <laughs> <laughs> mm, PJ, how about you? Well, uh, I I feel a little wilted going after Rich here, yeah. so I'll go in the <laughs> other direction. I think <laughs> I think probably the rarest synthesizer that i've had the pleasure of playing recently would be john bowen solaris ah well that's a good point because it's obviously not here yet yeah mm -hmm. i like that i like the way you and go that was that. at at last nam so oh. no oh. <laughs> apparently um it's i mean it was kind of supposed to be happening now-ish wasn't it so, so i'm presuming yeah i haven't talked to him recently but he yeah he was saying that initially it was june and then he had pushed it back to fall so I'm I'm not sure where he's at. If he's listening, maybe he'll let us know. Yeah, no, good. Well, I'd love to hear what's going on. Um, uh, incidentally, um, yeah. I think actually that's gonna I'm gonna introduce a new test for any synth that, that I actually um have in for review, and that's to get it to make a convincing fart sound. Why not? I don't know if I'll actually film. Maybe I'll make a compilation of them for something from another point. <laughs> anyway, the um the synth the Steiner Parker synthesot synthacon gush. Um, uh, well, there was only a few hundred of them made. Um, I found the only price I could find one was from an old Vimeo two thousand and three listing where it went for over two thousand bucks. Hey Nick, Nick, one other related uh, story. Uh, in 1988, during the making of the movie Coming to America in Hollywood, I met Niles Steiner, who was in the next studio working with Maurice Jarre on a movie score called Distant Thunder. And he had 
he had one of those wacky trumpet-like controllers in his hand, and he was playing a bunch of Steiner Parker modules and stuff. And uh, we had a really nice chat. He was a very, very nice man, very uh, self-effacing, not you know full of himself at all. It was really great. He seems to be a real gent. I called him, actually, to try and find an EV. And uh, this was probably kind of early 90s. And he didn't seem to have any, but he, he kind of moved heaven and earth to try and get me one. Amazing. And did yeah. you know that he played on Cagney and Lacey theme tune? No, really? Ah! Hey! <laughs> no, that's a real claim to fame. Yeah, but that stuff, that's the gift that keeps on paying. Yeah, that's right. I'd like that sort oh. of gig. Yes, please. I'd like to be Mike Post Incorporated, yeah. 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 <laughs> Why ever not? Ah. Well, guys, thank you very much. I think we're kind of coming to a... Have you asked me? No, I haven't, Mark. Of course I forgot. I totally <laughs> forgot. I'm terribly sorry, Mark. Mark, how about you? Nick has got a Russian synthesizer. And for the life of me, I can't remember what it's called. Is it, and I've uh, just been looking. Polyvox? No, it begins with T. And I bought, we bought it from Vemia. Yeah. Synth auctions. And it did come from Russia, I think. And all the knobs on it work back to front. Ah, so Cyrillic you, style. <laughs> so when you do, do cut-off frequency, you have to turn the knob anti-clockwise to get the filter to open and when you do the envelopes the attack envelope you have to turn it anti-clockwise to make it longer it's very weird very very weird and i wish i could remember what it's called but it must be quite rare because i can't find it anywhere i've been desperately trying to find its name from somewhere there's a whole bunch of russian synths that look really fascinating aren't they i mean on all these russian russian synth sites at the moment yeah, that... so I guess that's the rarest one I've ever played because I can't find it anywhere. And sorry, I don't know what it's called, but I'll find out. How does it sound? Rubbish. <laughs> that's why it's so I rare. I, seeing... I think I remember seeing this. Yeah. What was it? And as... then? can you remember? I don't. No, I don't remember. But as for the knobs going back to front, it's a little bit like a vintage Neve console. You guys should be used to that. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Well, Mark, thank you very much for that. Um, I'm going to um, say that there's one thing that I want to just finish with. Robbie Ryan, who's a regular listener to the show, um, sent this email, uh, and basically he's made a track out of last week's podcast. And here's what he said. I swore, I had sworn last night that I would not work on a track. I finished two to three per week. Um, but I was so inspired by the last Sonic Talk podcast that I had to do so. I hope to. In- I hope you enjoy. In case your listeners care, the lead was a microcorg. The sequence baseline was done by an MKS50 and Alesis Nano Bass, and the drums were done by a Jomox analog synthesizer based uh, a Jomox analog bass drum module, R- Roland RAM, and a Korg M1R. Both of, both of the latter of which have been used for, by me for eighteen years. All it was all sequenced and programmed on a beige Mac running. OS 9. So as I play this out, I think we'll say goodbye to um, all our guests and thank you very much for joining them. First of all, thanks to everybody who joined us in the chat room. We had a bumper crop this week. You can find us here every Wednesday, hopefully, if uh, conditions are right sonicstate.com forward slash live so thank you very much um, and also thank you to my guests uh, first of all I'd like to say thanks to Dave Spears from GeForce Software for joining us thank you and PJ Tracy from Minneapolis uh, pjtracymusic.com thank you so much it's been a real pleasure have a great week and really bask in the glory of that Emmy and the new relative addition to your family Yay. thank you very much yeah, congratulations. And Mark Tinley, thank you as well. Thank you very much. I'm going to go and look in Peter Forrest's book in a minute because I 
I'm sure that we wouldn't have bought it unless it was in Peter's book, so I imagine it's in there. So All right, I'll, well, we'll check that I'll, out. We'll know what it is later. Mark Chinley, of course, funnymachine.com. Thank you very much, Mark. And last but no means least, uh, Rich Hilton from Connecticut, who uh, is working in the studio. Are you working in the studio with Niall today, or are you having a, a quiet day before you head off with Sheik to Belgium? I think it's a quiet day today. I think it's a quiet day, but uh, as always, a pleasure, and... My uh, heartfelt congratulations to PJ on his richly deserved honor. Well, thank you very much, Rich. Are you going to send us pictures? Yeah, I want to see a picture of your gong, PJ. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> Somebody's going to sample that and turn that into a track, aren't they? Yeah. Can I plug my website while I'm here? Yeah, why not? Okay, good. I've got a free creativity MP3. If you go to my website and sign up, for the newsletter, you'll be given a free link to download a 20-minute creativity program, which is basically one of those binaural beats things, which I've, uh, see, I'm so creative that I can't even think. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, I've played around with, you know, like those binaural beat frequency CDs, which basically synchronize your brainwaves. Okay. What I've done is I've played around with the pattern of that. So I actually start off taking people into deep sleep and then speed it up to make them, you know, to simulate uh, creativity brainwave patterns. Oh, right. That sounds good. Uh, Maybe uh, I'll try that before the next podcast. It might help me out. free downloadable at the moment. It takes about 20 minutes to do, and uh, it's good fun. Okay, great. Well, head on over. That's funnymachine.com and check it out. Right, okay, well, if anybody has anything more to add, um, then please do. But in the meantime, I'm going to um, disconnect the live feed, and thanks once again to everybody in the chat room. Oh, what? All right, so it's a kind of new phase of the music season. Yeah. Anybody on marimba? complete analog slut um <laughs> i like it <laughs> that's okay. all i can say Next. i don't know how he did the drums they sound really good I mean, I think as creative people, we all just seek um, approval and uh, of course. <laughs> the whole time. So any more we can squeeze out of it by these kind of uh, tenuous things is, is good for me. <laughs> no, it just makes it easier to go wow, wow, wow on the filter, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> kind of uh, Liberace type uh, piano piano riff.